to this episode of The Digital Backpack. The conversation featured in this episode was recorded at a time before the global pandemic began in March of 2020. We weren't able to release it before that time. And at the time that we first started to grapple with the implications of what this pandemic meant for K-12 education, Justin and I decided it best to wait on releasing a couple of the episodes that we had recently recorded and were ready to release soon. We feel that now is an appropriate time to release these conversations. We just wanted to share with you that that the conversations took place in a completely different context than uh, we've become accustomed to over the last couple months. So with that, we hope you enjoy the conversation. All right. Welcome, everyone. We are here with Ariel Raz, the head of learning collaborations at Stanford's D-School K-12 Lab. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us a little bit about what you do. Cool. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here and excited for this podcast. Awesome. So I think just painting a broad picture for us would probably be really helpful uh, at the outset here. Um, head of learning collaborations. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what that is, what that entails, and then how you came to be the head of learning collaborations, a little bit about your journey? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, I suppose it'll be good to start with a little bit of background uh, on, on the D-School. So the organization itself sits within Stanford University and uh, it's part of its mission is to offer classes to Stanford students that sit at the intersection of uh, many disciplines. And my role is unique, and my group is unique in that we we face a Stanford community, but we also face an external community because we're the K twelve lab, and we work with educators, we work with teachers, administrators, school leaders, and students, and of course, a lot of those people don't happen to be enrolled at Stanford at the time. So uh, my specific role is to sort of stand in between the organization and different schools or, or partners that are uh, working in um, granting projects or other type of educational institutions that may wanna figure out a design thinking um, project that they're, they'd like to pursue, and then figuring out how we might scope and execute that project if it's within our, uh, our learning interests for the year. So um, that's kind of the, a, a big part of what I do, but, but a lot of the work that I do might fit into the title learning experience designer, which is the role that I previously held. And, and it really just means creating professional learning experiences uh, for those same groups of people, teachers, administrators, and students uh, that help them experience uh, design thinking, and, you know, which is a, a very different work modality than you often see people do traditionally in schools. So um, while I'm also kind of scoping and executing these projects, oftentimes I'm, I'm doing the project, which requires a, a large amount of learning experience design. 
Great. That's really helpful context. So I'm curious just then about how, um, how your interests really, um, play into the work that you do now. How were you kind of like, um, brought to this position and how, how, how does that kind of play out based upon like maybe your own personal mission and vision around, um, education? Sure. Yeah. So I, I'll take it back to when I was in the classroom. So I taught middle school special ed math for, uh, three years. So I started out teaching in a really small classroom right outside uh, New Orleans in a, in a place called St. Bernard Parish. And uh, when I first stepped in, you know, not uh, having a, a, as much experience as I would have liked teaching, um, I tried to teach those students the way that I had been taught math um, and followed the typical I do, we do, you do lesson plan. And uh, you know, I, I feel like I got as about as good as I could be at that format, uh, especially for a first-year teacher. I really put a lot of thought and intention to executing that effectively. And even when I would be at my best, I would, you know, be running around, like, teaching my students as much as possible. And then they might do well on their exit tickets. And then they'd sort of go home, fall asleep, wake up the next day. And I found that the retention wasn't there. And I realized that I had to do things quite differently. I, uh, the best explanation is uh, that the quote by Einstein, which is I think is actually apocryphal, that insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. And I, I felt like I had to do things differently. Ultimately, what I discovered was um, a game-based pedagogy that I adopted from a lot of uh, Marilyn Burns's activities. Uh, she has a a book with the, the super intriguing title. It's about teaching mathematics a resource. It was super vague, uh, but it's, it's actually incredible. Um, it's got a lot of math games. And I, I didn't have a language for this at the time, but then when I ended up in, in graduate school, uh, I learned that there was a pretty strong theory called preparation for future learning. Uh, and the basic idea there is before explaining a concept to a student, Right when you when you do the students will be able to sort of lesson plan. You make things as clear as possible. You give them a goal, and you build your lesson towards that goal. Before you do that, if if it's a big concept, a concept, you need to actually demonstrate that concept to the students in a way that sticks. And games are an incredibly effective mechanism for doing that. So a, a math game that has some real-world experience with fractions, say, like fractions can be very difficult because it's the first time for students as numbers go up, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, those numbers go up, they increase in value. Well, now you have one half, one third, one fourth, one fifth, one sixth, one seventh, that's a decrease in value. And that initial conceptual understanding was super hard for my students. But if there's an experience base that can really ground that understanding, then you can start to explain why that um, conceptual difference makes sense when you see it on a piece of paper and things like that. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying that the experience part of learning really matters uh, based on my experience and based on all that I saw in the classroom. And when I, when I ended up in graduate school, you know, a few years down the road, I took classes at the D school and I realized that they had such a powerful approach to that deep experience piece within their instructional model. And I was, I, I realized that there was this group, the K-12 lab that focused on bringing that approach 
to the K-12 space. And I was like, oh my God, I, this is where I want to be working. This is what I want to do. And so luckily I sort of finagled my way into, into an internship that turned into um, a job. And, and I've you know, been there a little bit more than five years now. Wow. Well, I mean, thanks for painting that incredibly vivid picture and then <laughs> grounding all that in a really, I think, relatable uh viewpoint or, or a frame of reference for, for teachers. I, I can put myself in the same uh, shoes being a teacher and just kind of always questioning whether or not the concepts are really sticking right and wondering about um, how to be able to um, do as much as you can in terms of a from a from a design standpoint to try to ensure those things I, I will say I another thing that I really latched onto and I'm, and I'm sorry Jeff to to if I'm excluding you in the conversation here but I really latched on to the idea that you you lived and worked in Louisiana that's where I'm actually from I, I grew up and spent my whole life there up until about uh, seven or eight years ago so um, I know St. Bernard Parish, the, the parish, very well. Yeah, times are hard in St. Bernard. <laughs> Ariel, you said an experience-based learning experience really, really matters, and it's what brought you to where you're at now. Really cool that you started off as an intern and are uh, are still with it five years later. And how many title changes have you had in five years? Um, I suppose just. I guess you could say two, if, if I ever held the title of intern, I mean, I was an intern. I didn't, uh, I didn't feel very official, but that's, that's part and course for the D school, which is very much a project based group. So your, your title might stay the same, but what changes are all the projects that you're involved in? And so your work might dynamically change based on the project. Gotcha. So what do those projects look like? You know, none of them are typical. So I guess we need to talk about a couple of them, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. And there's actually a lot there to speak about, um, including not just the projects that I'm, I'm doing, you know, really focusing a large amount of my time on, but also the projects that my colleagues are doing, I think would be very interesting to, to get into. Absolutely. So, um, the, because I work with a lot of external organizations, uh, many of the projects that I do are, are with schools that are interested in uh, taking design thinking and finding an implementation process and, and trying to drive at a particular type of change. So uh, one project we've been working on, uh, we're now in our second year, is with uh, Graded, the American School of Sao Paulo, which is an independent school um, uh, w within, within Sao Paulo. They are leading a change initiative uh, that's focused on bringing learning sciences into the classroom, which they, they're working with um, Kevin Mattingly, who's a Columbia University professor of practice on refining and crystallizing how they bring those practices into each and every classroom. Um, where we're working with them is using the design thinking model to figure out um, how to do that. Um, let me explain kind of one bit about design thinking, which might help clarify that. So, so part of what we, we try and do um, when we design from our perspective is to begin with the, the person who is affected by a product or change in mind. Um, in some context, you might call this the user. In a school context, you might call it the student, or it could also be the teacher. Uh, but the basic idea is that you need to really have a solid understanding of their 
daily lived experience in order to design for them. And so uh, from a learning science perspective, it's quite interesting because if you take something like productive struggle, which the learning science research believes in and, and, and they've chosen as being a, a, one of the key learning science principles that they want to have adopted in every school, uh, it, it really matters who the student is and not just what would be a struggle point for them, but also what would be productive for them. Like what would motivate them to make something that might be a hurdle actually productive, which is a very personal understanding. Uh, then there's also the intellectual understanding of, okay, well, what do they presently know? And what's on the edge of that learning that I can now create a question or, um, or a task that will, will be at that edge? And so it's through the combination of these approaches that I think you can really start to get at impactful work and, and frameworks for doing change in schools. Um, I'll, I'll speak about another project that we've, we've done just because I, I, I believe it really helps to capture one of the, these basic ideas of empathy in schools, and that's the shadow of student challenge which is a challenge we've been running, I, th I think for three, it might even be four years. Uh, we, and we developed this idea with IDEO through a grant from Hewlett. Uh, the, the core action there is quite simple. We challenge a school leader to go out and take a day where they clear their schedule and they shadow a student from bus stop to bus stop. You know, they pick a, a student who might represent a group that they want to learn more about and they they go into every classroom that they go into they have lunch with them and they see school through their eyes and i think you can start to understand how from an administrative perspective you're constantly making decisions that impact the life of students and although you know your school well it's not the same as experiencing it through a student's perspective is. And so that this, even, even just by noticing little things like how much movement happens or doesn't happen, how short classes are, what it's like to feel hungry, you know, getting in trouble for taking out your phone in the middle of class, these little things that are part of the daily lived experience of students can impact the decision-making process of these choice makers in powerful ways. Do these, let's say it's a school district that you're working with, do they already have a strong sense of uh, a compelling problem that, um, that they're looking to partner with you to solve? Or is it, is it a little bit more nebulous than that? They're, they're aware of, you know, the D school and wanting to partner to, to discover what, what, uh, what can be approved upon. I, I wonder how the, how these projects get identified. Yeah, I, I'll give the perhaps unsatisfying answer of it depends. Uh, sure. For the shadow students, that, that program specifically, that's meant to be a campaign. So we try and reach like a large amount of school leaders and we have created resources to support their journey, but they don't, uh, we don't work with them one-on-one -on -one per se, except with a few, but it's just because it happens at such a large scale, we're not able to really hold that. 
The schools that we work with, like the example I gave um, with graded the American school in Sao Paulo, uh, that's a school that has already chosen a very specific goal they're trying to achieve. And so the design thinking becomes a, uh, a set of tools that really helps to achieve that goal, uh, but is, is much more nuanced and much more specific to that context because we're working them with them a bit more closely. That's interesting. That's kind of a, along the lines of a question I had around, you know, the the kind of breakdown in the the K twelve lab networks work around these kind of like really customized, um, I guess you might call them client partner relationships, where you're working with a school around a specific design challenge versus whether there's any kind of like work that's dedicated to really like proselytizing about design thinking in general and kind of casting a wider net to get more people to understand what it is and how it can be an impactful tool for them. Is that also part of, part of the lab networks work? Yeah. So what we um, try and do is, is catch a certain number of folks who are interested in what design thinking is and giving them a chance to meaningfully experience a design thinking project and and so that they can start to take on that work uh, in their school. We, um, we've run a program called Discover Design Thinking for a number of years now. Um, I think it, in total, it might be five or six years, so I don't have the exact number. Um, we do that four times a year at the D School, and we, we also have run it in other sites, um, especially places that have a large amount of interest. We've been to uh, the Midwest, for example. We've, we've gone to Minnesota and run a program a couple years back, and will likely run another one this summer. Um, I, I think the there is a challenge where we very much believe that to understand how to do design thinking in your school, you need to really experience it, which goes back to my comments earlier. You need to have a sense of what this project, this process and, and methodology feels like in action. Uh, and, and that requires a, a high-touch, uh, say, workshop or, or a few days. Um, at the same time, there's also a tension of dreaming up new experiences and looking at areas where uh, what we bring can create impact for education broadly and using the process and methodologies ourselves in order to imagine new prototypes that can make an impact. So while we we do want to get the word out there on design thinking, we very much have to manage attention of doing outreach and and teaching people and also applying the process ourselves and developing new ideas. That's great. Are are there any other kind of outreach initiatives or general programs that you wanted to highlight for us, like maybe even some specific ideas around educational innovation that you're trying to focus narrowly on that you see play out in schools? Well, we love to share. And anytime we come up with a project that might be local or specialized because of where we are geographically, we always create resources and put them online that folks can engage with and in most cases take and adopt in their own context. So, for example, we we have been working on a project around assessment and specifically it uses the an escape room as a model for thinking about assessment differently. Um, obviously, we in, in K-12, 
testing has a very particular context um, and one that has become very challenging for teachers um, and carries with it so much weight around failure. And, and what happens in that is like we, we lose sight of how impactful assessment can be because it has this strong bureaucratic function and really just can work to sort students rather than help them create measures for, for meaningful growth. Um, so we, what we wanted to do was kind of drive the conversation into uh, measuring things that matter more. And at the same time, we had been experimenting with escape rooms, you know, in our, in our own professional circle. We realized that the performance task of an escape room is a, a complex and meaningful one because you need to communicate in challenging time-bound situation you need to collaborate with other people and there's a lot of critical thinking that takes place and because of the nature of the puzzles in an escape room uh, might change there's not one strategy that might work uh, and i should back up and say for those who don't know what an escape room is you know it's basically this room which is a puzzle it might be some sort of theme say uh, it could be Houdini, or it could be you're trapped in a spaceship and there's an alien coming and you have to get out. And then there are all these clues and puzzles. You have to figure out which clues go together and and solve them with your the, your other escape room artists uh, to get out. It usually takes an hour. So within that situation, you have to bring together all of these interpersonal skills as well as cognitive skills to achieve the escape. Right, and it's, it's very exciting. And what's kind of great about it is while you're doing it, you often don't think about how you're working with one another because you don't have much time. You're just acting. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we used that setup as a way to measure collaboration, critical thinking, communication and created some frameworks for how you can bring in an observer into an escape room context and start to measure these pieces and then have a conversation with all the folks who participated to then drive some learning around those specific areas. Um, and that, uh, that escape room took the form of a bus. And we, it was actually an old Frito-Lays truck that we happened to have donated at the D-School uh, and our, uh, my colleague, Louis Montoya, led this project. He transformed this truck into an escape room, and we took it to South by Southwest. So there was that moment to engage with it there. We, we then took it to Deeper Learning in San Diego. Uh, but now that the, the motor on the truck has you know, probably reached its last legs, what we've done is taken those materials and put them online. So you can go and create an escape room in your classroom. And there's a pretty robust tool set there. Um, and, and that model for, for doing a project and having it prototyped in a few sites and then creating a tool of resources, that's very much the model and arc of a project within the B-School. So if, if you're interested in that or, or other K-12 lab project, it's all on our website and it's pretty accessible. And we also are, are fairly easy to get a hold of. So if you do have questions about how to implement any of these projects in your classroom where we're an email or a phone call away and we can um, talk about our suggestions for how to get those things off the ground. 
Yeah, that's that's very cool. And and I can vouch for how accessible you are since I kind of cold emailed you out of the blue to, to ask you to participate in an interview. And and here we are. So that's that's awesome. What would you say the kind of the reaction was to um, to the puzzle bus activity? Did did it seem to excite folks, get them thinking in a different way, thinking about how to measure um, those different skills in different ways and and, and maybe influencing the way they design and shape assessments in their own settings? Yeah, I would say the most meaningful uh, account I have of the impact of, of shifting the conversation around assessment is when we ran the session uh, at an independent school in Chile. We happened to be there for a conference and uh, we had students who showed up. We had about maybe 25 to 40% of our attendees were students and they were so excited to change the conversation around testing and almost became indignant with their teachers who were in the room that they didn't have more opportunities to do something like this. I, I think the reaction has been incredibly powerful. I, I, it, teachers are, are, they know they want, um, to assess, they, they want to give meaningful feedback to their students and, and they're doing it, uh, but, but testing often becomes a barrier. And, and this becomes a way to shift the conversation to really talk about, hey, like, this is what I'm noticing. This is what you you are doing. How can we grow? Um, and I, I find that it folks are very excited to engage in that conversation and oftentimes want more of it. That's great. You know, Ariel, I'm going to kind of embrace thinking in first draft philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, I got a thought that's kind of tacit, and I think maybe you can help me with it. The thing I, a thing I appreciate about design thinking when I've been involved in a two-day workshop or um, applying um, some of the principles is that it seems like like the protocols, um, there's protocols that are constraining. You talked about the escape room, for example. That's a constraining structure that you're working within. The, the explicit focus is on the task at hand, the thing that, uh, the thing that you want to accomplish. But the thing that kind of goes unspoken, the collaboration that comes about isn't necessarily explicitly detailed on how how folks should engage with one another and how they should work through things. And um, you can leave a session that is facilitated using design thinking strategies and feel maybe still a little bit murky, maybe a little bit more clear on, on where you're going. Maybe you come out with a bunch of um, uh, ideas uh, that, that have been generated in an, in, in an ide ideation session. Um, maybe you've got like some semi-working prototypes and like uh, it takes time, right? It takes several in engagements and, and iterations to get where you, where you want. But like in reflection, participants in sessions seem to always talk to, to me about how it was a really good session. I feel like I learned a lot from Justin, um, when he had that idea, and I never even thought about this angle on it, especially if you're talking about using design thinking with students, you come up with some un unforeseen uh, collaborative efforts that that uh, enrich the culture and bring students closer together. And they're, they're a little bit more able uh, to work together to accomplish whatever their next task is going to be. Same with professionals, the, the focus of what you're trying to accomplish 
seems to either matter a little bit less or is equal to the feeling of togetherness that those mm-hmm. groups seem to leave with. And I wonder if that's a, a common thread that you see through a, the different groups that you work with. Absolutely. You know, when I, oftentimes when I will facilitate an initial experience, maybe most of the participants are novices and this is their first taste of design thinking, I'll open by explaining what we're doing is uh, is a, a sort of look at our behavior as humans and making slight shifts in order to get different results. And it's not to say that our default behavior is wrong or bad, but that it achieves certain res- outcomes. And if you want to think about creating new outcomes or doing things in a different manner, if you want to get different results, you might need to shift your behavior in subtle ways. And those behavior shifts uh, often feel quite good because they can help create a collaborative environment that uh, that allows more voices into the room. So an, an example of this, right, is um, is brainstorming. One of the behaviors we explicitly teach, brainstorming. And I think we've all been part of a brainstorm that feels crummy, where you're sitting around and someone asks, you know, to, maybe your boss asks for you to come up with an idea. And because your your boss is the person who can say whether an idea is good or bad, everyone's quiet, right? They're, they're afraid to share. And the behavior shift that we suggest for, for that is to separate idea generation from idea critique. Mm-hmm. And usually what happens is, we do that at the same time. We, we try to come up with an idea, but we're also doubting ourselves or we're, we're being honestly critical and say, you know, that's not a good idea. I probably shouldn't share that. Let me try and get another idea. And there's this built-in negativity to that generation process, which is counterproductive. And so what we, we, try, we say is, you know, we're just going to get all ideas out there. Just share an idea and also build on those ideas so that the hierarchy feels flat instead of top down. Right. And then once you feel that there are enough good ideas out there, sorry, not enough good ideas, that there are enough ideas plain and simple out there, then you you weigh the good ideas from bad or then you impose constraints, right? You might say, "Hey, w- we only have a short amount of time. Which of these ideas can we actually implement in 2 days?" And that allows you to choose and then you're able to move ahead. But if you if you weigh yourself down at the idea generation phase, it's going to be much harder to do all those subsequent things. Um, and and that's, an exa- that, that's something that can be taught, um, but you likely aren't going to shift that behavior without a nudge or some modeling that explains how it's different and kind of shows you how a, a brainstorm might function in this other manner. So it, it's a subtle thing. It, it, it's, a, it's a simple thing. But uh, it's an area, I think, where facilitation or the experience design can really make an impact. Some of the rules in that are let's do one thing at a a time. Let's go slow to go fast. Because like a lot of our natural sensibilities, let's say, let's go with a professional context. You're in a staff meeting. There's a lot of like quick decisions or non-decisions. And to separate out those processes and, and invite everyone to the table and allow time to be everyone's 
ally um, to create equity in the voice of the conversation and to explicitly shaping norms. All, all voices are equal. Throw ideas on the table um, and, and not qualifying them as good ideas or bad ideas at, at this point in time, not, not grading them out. Right. Trust that eventually we are going to get to a decision-making point or several decision-making points along the way. Living in that process seeing the checkpoints along the way and communicating them explicitly um, and sharing in them explicitly, it seems like a powerful shift in group thinking and group collaboration. Yeah, that's right. I, I Maybe to highlight one more, another one is prototyping and testing. And the idea that, you know, you shared, you're sharing uh, a first draft of an idea. It's It's that movement, that action of, okay, I have an idea. I'm going to build a first crummy prototype of it. And then I'm going to share it. I'm going to get feedback on it. And that has at least two powerful effects. One, on the personal level, as a person making the prototype, I learn more about it through making it. I'm, you know, think with my hands. I, I actualize the idea. And through testing it, I then get feedback on the idea. And that engages me in a cycle to move forward. But the other effect of it, which goes more to your point around on creating collaboration with folks who you might not normally be collaborating with, is if I'm the person who's testing the idea, I've now been invited into the world of this project or the world of this prototype. And especially in a school context where people are often working independently, either in their classrooms or in their small groups, there's we could use more opportunities to collaborate and learn from one another. And then, and then you can really build momentum around an idea. So there, there are two powerful effects there. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. So I would be remiss if we didn't mention one other initiative. Um, Michigan virtual is obviously a, um, tech-focused company. We have uh, roots in designing online courses for K-12 students. We've since kind of expanded in the area of scaling professional learning using online and, and tech-enabled methods. So I'm, I'm just a little curious if, if you could share a little bit uh, about the emerging technology and understanding how people learn initiative uh, taking place at the, the D school as well. Absolutely. So those are two different initiatives. I'll, I'll share about both of them. One big shift, I would say, in the last four or five years with the K-12 lab is to explore the intersection of design and equity. That, that happened about five years ago, and my colleague David Clifford led a collaboration with uh, National Equity Project and their uh, wonderful team in Oakland, and really started to think about if we do design thinking from an equity perspective, uh, what does that show us? And then what actions could we take that help achieve more equitable outcomes? And there's, there's a great little card deck called Liberatory Design that sort of outlines this process. I, but in addition to creating that, uh, that resource, we've also looked at our own programs and asked that question of how do we make this more equitable and made changes to existing programs and started to dream up new programs with that idea in mind. So to this emerging technology initiative, you know, if, if the basic idea is if we want the future of technology to engage all people, all people need to know how to create with this technology. 
And if you take something like blockchain, which is incredibly complicated, it's for me, you know, as as a, a non-technologist layperson, it's very difficult to think about what this technology is, let alone how to work with it. And so the, the exercise of that project is really to take these technologies and think, okay, how do I communicate the core aspect of what this is? And then create a learning experience that an educator or a K-12 student in a context that might not be Silicon Valley, you know, might not have the same resources technology as a, as a well-resourced school, like how could they engage with this concept uh, with, with pencil and paper? And, and so th that's really been the task of the, the project is to create these kind of simple resources that help communicate these complex ideas, but not just from a perspective of, I understand what this is better than I walked in. But more than that, like I, I see the creative potential of this technology. Here's something that I can make using blockchain or using a machine learning algorithm. I might not know all the nuances of, of how to code with it, right? That's going to require much more specialized work and specialized understanding. But I understand conceptually what this can do. And now if I go and learn the intricacies of, of creating with that technology, I'm actually in a much better position to understand how those might affect uh, or, or sit within an initiative. So um, that project has, it already has some prototypes that are, that are available to look at. One is the um, I Love Algorithms card deck, which you can read about on the DSCO website and, and sign up for. And uh, I really, I'm, I'm very impressed with that project. And I think it, it has a lot of potential for K-12. The, uh, the other initiative you talked about, understanding how people learn, it's one that's in its early stages, I would say. Uh, part of it is, as I mentioned in the project with the Graded the American School in Sao Paulo, uh, it's, it's being done uh, in collaboration with them and sort of localized in their context. Uh, but we're, we're basically in a research phase where we're, we're trying, uh, we're gathering uh, different insights from the literature of how people learn. And next, we will engage in a process of prototyping how we can communicate those insights to a much larger audience. So it's, it's in a research phase now, followed by what will be a diffusion phase. And I imagine that we'll be sharing about that broadly on our, on our website. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for also touching on that liberatory design deck. Um, I, I was leading a design thinking session a few months ago with a, a STEM educator group and uh, someone who was really familiar with design thinking and the work of the D school pointed me toward that. And so that's been something I've been trying to chew on a lot lately that, um, that idea of using design think design thinking um, with equity as a common through line. So I would highly encourage people to check that out as well. Thanks also for mentioning the, the website. We'll be sure to point folks to uh, the website so they can explore all these different projects and probably a multitude of other initiatives and exciting work that you guys are doing that we didn't get to touch on in the conversation today. Ariel, uh, we just want to thank you again for taking the time out of your day to talk with us. And uh, we really, really appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. It was great talking to you. Mm -hmm. 
My name is Ken Durkin. I'm the executive director of the Michigan Virtual Learning Research Institute, which is part of Michigan Virtual and focuses on the efficacy of online and blended learning. And Ken listened to the interview and he's going to help us unpack some of the conversation points that we had with Ariel. Ken, what'd you think of the episode? I thought it was good. We, um, we've been doing design sprint and design thinking work at Michigan Virtual to help kind of solidify the requirements of course builds and uh, work on our platforms that we use to deliver courses. So it felt familiar and probably because of that and that we have some expertise in it, I wanted him to go deeper, right? But I think it was probably deep enough for the layman to get an understanding of what design sprints are. Design thinking, sorry, I keep saying design sprint. Design thinking is and how it could apply in an education context. So maybe it went a little too far for the general public. But to me, I felt a thirst for wanting more. What is design thinking to you? You talk about design sprints and design thinking, and uh, I'm sure there's other terminology out there. What is design thinking to you? Design thinking is a process for human-centered design. So just the idea of keeping your end user in mind and all the tools and protocols built in to help you consistently do that through a design process. I thought that like came through even in his conversations um, that weren't really touching on design thinking, right? Like even him relaying his experiences as a teacher, um, like just trying to be incredibly empathetic to his students' lived experiences and trying to understand like what was going to be the thing that he could um, pull a lever for that was going to actually help the content resonate or the learning experience resonate and have it be something that stuck. And so I kind of thought like, Oh yeah, like he's, I think he kind of naturally thinks that way. And it sounds pretty fortunate that he's able to build a career based on working with others around design thinking where he is now too. I wonder if um, other people in the classroom, I, to me, teachers are, design thinking experts. They're looking at their students, trying to figure out how to best help their students learn content, understand subject matter, whatever it is. Um, and so they have to be very human-centered just in their own processes. And I'm, I'm wondering if teachers in general understand that or they just haven't been introduced to the concept in the way that like business talks about design thinking. Um, it's kind of like emotional intelligence, right? Like teachers are very good at emotional intelligence, but it's not a thing in the business world. And as soon as you start talking about emotional intelligence and using terminology like that, as it's been defined, teachers are like, well, that's what I do every day. Right. Uh, yeah. So I'm just curious, like how people, if people connect to it that way, or if they see it as something different than what they do. I think you're onto something. I mean, if we just look at first, do teachers do design thinking or something that's akin to design thinking. And with your definition of user-centered design and relying on feedback from the user, in this case, the learner, and evolving your product over time in the way that you do your business in order to meet the needs of that user then that's describing teaching in a lot of ways. 
Sure, there are methodologies that are applied uh, without the context of those specific students with that specific teacher. And usually it's following an in-service or something where a teacher gets, um, gets these canned strategies and stuff like that. But by taking those strategies and trying them out and seeing how they work, then I think that that's very much, um, it's ripe for that kind of work, right? And I think in a lot of ways, um, what you talked about is true to a lot of different topics that if you have enough time to talk with a teacher and you get past the the buzzwords, the the vernacular differences between you and that teacher, usually if the concept holds true and feels right, they will say, oh yeah, I've been doing that. So there's a lot of stuff in the profession that kind of just gets, because of the nature of a teacher being by themselves and honing their craft for years, that it just all becomes one thing, right? You forget where you learned this or that, and you forget exactly what to call it. But the stuff that works keeps getting put into practice, and the stuff that doesn't just usually doesn't work, right? I think it's interesting that you went to, um, well, I, I guess I brought up the, the the anecdote that he told about being a teacher, but we're talking about teachers kind of doing something and maybe not knowing what it is. I think a lot of criticism that gets levied at like K-12 schools now that is kind of reflective of um, – students' experiences in schools or their kind of like reported experiences in schools and whether or not they're having meaningful and impactful experiences in schools have less to do with like the things that happen in the classroom in a lot of ways, right? Um, and maybe there's even more to be gained from the adoption of using design thinking on a broader scale in the way we run school systems or in the way we run um, buildings rather than like the day-to-day work of a teacher and working with a student in a classroom. Which it sounded to me kind of like a lot of the projects that Ariel was referencing were kind of getting toward like deep systems design work. From a systems design standpoint, I could see how a lot of teachers who uh, matriculate up into leadership roles and they're focused on issues that aren't direct instruction and the idea of getting people into kind of the perspective of the student again to help them think about the student's needs and the and the environment that the student's operating in and the outcomes uh, that the student's supposed to achieve uh, is really important in a, like a systems design standpoint for schools. And you often hear people reference uh, schools have to deal a lot with adult problems and not so much student problems. So I feel like a lot of the work that I've seen in school improvement has been how to reorient to be focused on the students again as a leader in a school or a district um, different than, than, than currently exist with these really complex systems that are in place for running schools. And, and don't get me wrong, I empathize with anybody who's in the position of having to do that work. Um, because I know how hard it is to try to work in such a uh, legacy system. Like we've been running schools and uh, 
pretty similar way for a hundred years now or more. Right. Um, but I think it was really encouraging to hear Ariel talk about the shadowing program that he mentioned, right? Like how often do administrators have opportunities to do things like that without being really intentional um, and thinking about how to empathize with who's supposed to be their end user in a sense, the student, right? So you keyed in on the empathy part of it, the empathy of applying a a design thinking model or a design thinking like uh, approach to just doing school, right? Is there any other aspects of the design thinking process that you latched onto uh, when you were listening to the episode as in relation to the business of school? And it wasn't hit upon in a way that wasn't in depth, but the problem identification part of design thinking, I think, is often sometimes overlooked. Uh, Once again, using school improvement as an example, uh, a lot of people can read data, but they don't understand data or they don't have a way to interpret data. So they're misidentifying problems that you see on first pass on data. So this idea is the design thinking process of really doing solid problem identification is a really important part of the, of the process. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody else, like, I think Justin shared a resource at one point where somebody said, design thinking done wrong, it's 10% of the time spent on problem identification. Design thinking done right, it's 40% of the time is focused on uh, problem identification and, and kind of unpacking the problem. And so, um, but empathy is a component of that, right? Sure. Like who yeah. you're designing for and what problem are you trying to address that they're having? So I don't know if I'm straying any farther away from my original thoughts on it. Uh, but yeah, I think that's something that I see a lot in schools that's not really done well or people don't give them the time because they have so many other competing priorities to do well. I think in a lot of ways, um, in education, we're trying to just pick the best solution as quickly as possible, right? Because there are a lot of people trying to sell us a lot of different solutions. Um, and we're also not spending a ton of time trying to pick out what the most important problem is. Or every every problem is incredibly important because so many people realize the importance of this work in terms of educating a future generation of like an entire society. So it's pretty hard to feel like you can spend the time doing that um, and not feel like you're getting left behind or leaving others behind. Let's wonder how much um, happens where you're being told what your problems are and then you're like data mining to identify that that's a problem. It's fine. It's authentic. (laughs) So how much are you like searching for a problem that you've been told that you have to try to figure out how to fix it versus actually starting from square one and saying, what are our biggest problems and how we, how do we identify those and unpack them before we start trying to come up with solutions? Cause I think it goes to that vendor mindset that you're kind of talking about, Justin, where people are just pushing solutions. Like you have this problem, you have that problem. We have the solution for you. Um, so how much of that, how much are schools being able to unpack all that and do that? that work themselves. It's like learning too. If one person is doing all the problem identification 
and packaging that all up and delivering it to the rest of the stakeholders. There, there is a way to do that right to where you are able to impactfully um, or impact their thinking and own that as well. But it's incredibly difficult when you invite those stakeholders into the process of problem identification. There's a lot of things that go along with good learning design that allow those that problem to be memorable and those problems to be recognized as real because they've sifted through the, the data and uh, participated in the conversations that got them that got to that point. And I think what you're talking about, both Ken and Justin, you're both talking about how involvement in in that process and having a process to focusing on structuring the process rather than uh, focusing on structuring the problem seems to be a way to not only identify what the real problem is, but to have buy-in that that's a problem that's worthy of pursuing a solution to. And I think, you know, from there, separate point, as you guys were talking about problem identification and you know, Ken, your your revisitation of it, even when I tried to pull you away from it, makes me feel, and I agree with you, that it's very important if you spend 40% of your time identifying the problem and coming to agreement that, yes, that is our problem, that that's design thinking done right. But I also think if you take away the jargon and you just talk about how things normally go functionally, Problem identification and solutioning usually are fused at the hip and they happen in quick succession and sometimes they don't even look like separate processes, right? As you're uncovering the problem, you're already formulating solutions in your mind. And I think that when you are able to have a process that intentionally separates those things, and it encourages the group to focus on one aspect at a time. Let's identify what the problem is. Let's reserve our judgments and our creative thinking about what solutions might be so that we make sure that we cull over everything and we're sure that that's the, the problem, that we don't jump the gun and get to thinking um we know what it is until we have the full picture, right? And at the same time, then flipping the switch and giving all stakeholders a level ground to come up with potential ideas before you lock into, right, we're going to do this. It's obvious. Like when you have, when you have meetings that shift from the problem to, well, I think it's pretty obvious what we should do. Right. In the same breath, uh, students seem to be struggling with this common assessment. And then 
immediately say, so I think it's pretty clear that what we need to do is X. That that feels really efficient, but it might be missing an opportunity to leverage the collective creativity of uh, a group of highly qualified educators. There's kind of like a known problem in research studies where you'll do a research study, you'll get certain results with a certain demographic in a certain scenario in a certain setting. And then those results may be very successful. People want to grab onto those and do a large scale implementation of them. And those typically that transition goes terribly because people haven't really thought about the context or the problem that they're trying to solve in that large scale versus the little small scale research study that happened. And so I think this idea of like stop pausing and considering what it means in your specific context or with your specific demographic of student or or mm. whatever it is, the context matters. And people don't give themselves the room to do that because everything's moving so fast and they need to figure out solutions quickly because I think about a, a teacher sitting in a classroom. If you're a high school teacher and you do a social studies lesson that you came up with and it bombs first hour, you're not going to do it again the same way second hour, third hour, fourth hour, right? You actually are iterating throughout the day to try to like figure out what's working and what's not yeah. working. And so um, you're, you're getting that immediate feedback. So you've identified the problem of how to deliver this instructional content. It didn't work when you deliver the solution. So now you're redesigning in the five minutes between classes to figure out what might work and what might not work. Um, so yeah, I, 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 both of you are former teachers and I'd love to hear like how, how you see the design thinking part in a teacher context. Did you, did you, was that something that you were looking at every day and trying to make those adjustments or is it like, how did you approach that process? You or me first. I'll defer to you. You got more teaching experience than I do. I taught secondary, mostly seventh grade, but I taught every grade except for eighth between seventh and twelfth grade. And some of those years I had different preps for actually my first year I was teaching on a cart. I didn't even have my own room and I was in five different classrooms and I taught five different preps, so it was five different subject areas. Uh, it was even, it was like a perfect storm of things to where one, I was teaching two sections of economics. One was the old version that was geared towards 11th graders that was more macro. And then the, uh, they were phasing in the ninth graders and I had one section of that and that was more consumer economics. And so that first year, it was really difficult to iterate on the content throughout the day because I would teach first hour and then second hour was a, I wasn't going to teach that lesson again for at least another calendar year. So that one was a little bit different, but it being so early on in my career, I was iterating on my I was revising my approach to student interaction and classroom management 
and the way that I, I was working on my cadence and the way I would pose questions and uh, transitions between, say, a presentation and a, um, a group discussion and then back again or, or whatever, right? So even when I was varying wildly with my content, I was sharpening my, my skills throughout the day or refining my process. And I think, um, I think on a good day, I could refine it all the way through. On the average day, there was like a good bell curve to my, like, I think that like third hour I peaked. It was like optimum, um, revision level of, uh, of growing throughout the day and then lunch hit. And then afterwards it was more difficult to focus on improving and more important to survive and get through stuff. Um, but then, you know, as my career evolved, though it was, you would focus on those areas of, you know, how do I perform and support students in a diminished energy capacity, right? Um, and especially once I settled into seventh grade and I was teaching the same class for four to five straight hours, that was a real good exercise in tweaking stuff, like, cause you can control the variables a lot more. The, the, the variables are different students, different times of the day and, but you locked in, um, and then t- little tweaks that you want to take to approaches, right? Should I, should I walk through the directions with this group or is it okay to just send them off into the WordPress site and let them, um, like start online versus starting in the face to face, right? So short answer. Yeah. That holds true to me as you're progressing through the day, but I don't, I think an elementary teacher would still, say that like through the arc of the day or through the arc of a week or the arc of a unit or the arc of a school year that there's a revision process that you're constantly working on your craftsmanship as an educator and um yeah i just happen to align with your example of where i'm teaching it's it all it all restarts every hour so i get an opportunity maybe the um Maybe the uh, intervals are shorter with a secondary teacher, but still with an elementary teacher, you have your your guideposts of your day where you're you're switching content and you're, there's the schedules are defined, even though it's not defined by uh, physically changing the students that are in front of you. It's interesting about the difference between elementary and secondary in the sense that. Yeah, in secondary, it's kind of like Groundhog's Day. Something doesn't go well in first hour. You're going to try to figure out how to salvage it for second, third, fourth, right? You don't want to waste the rest of that day with the students. Um, In elementary, it's much the skills that are being uh, taught are much wider in terms of impact. So you're revisiting the same skill development again and again and again. So if you're struggling with a certain literacy technique you're gonna you're gonna revisit that over and over again because you have kids who are high flyers you have kids who are struggling and then you have a bunch of kids in between on the bell curve so like you're gonna cover that same 
scale probably four or five times in a week or a month or whatever it mm-hmm. is, right? So I can see how you have bits of rapid, uh, you know, that, that rapid innovation happening across like that specific instructional component on a, on a, on a longer timeline where you're in, yeah, you're in secondary. You're really just trying to try not to waste everybody's time in second hour. If it bombed the first hour. I, I think too, just to follow up on that, like I, as you were talking, I started to think about how, how intentional is that? How, how, how much is a educator conscious that they're working on that? And I don't think it's a simple, yes, they're thinking about doing that and, or no, they're not. There's definitely just a variety of mindsets that you're in with that. But I just started thinking about like a lot of times I'd change stuff up just because I was bored of doing it a certain way. And sometimes I would change it up with intentionality of the feedback that I got from students in that earlier class period was like, man, uh, that did not go well when I started face to face. Um, uh, I need to just say, Hey, get to the class website and check out the lesson for today. And I'll be around. Like I, 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 my feedback was the, um, behavior of the class, perhaps maybe it was classroom management. Maybe it was engagement. Maybe they already knew what they were like. I was intentionally acting on the feedback and I knew that I was doing that. Um, and then I know that there's sometimes where the, the data, the information that I was collecting from the previous classes was kind of just washing over me. And I didn't really know that I was pulling from any particular sources. And I might have felt like it was more of a feeling than it was action research. But, you know, reflecting now, it, it very much, I think a lot of intuition of an educator is um, still gut, but I think gut, there's a lot that informs a gut, right? And to say it's just experience and, and just the time that you've spent in those interactions um, is selling it a little bit short because there's a lot of real-time data that um, teachers are really good processors of data, but they're not always aware that what they're processing is, is data because they're used to being told what data is. Uh, data is what comes from map test results and uh, and data is something that's done to you. And I don't think that they necessarily realize that Tommy's engagement level in the back of the classroom um, is has several data points just in that that sentence, like the location within a room, the 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 person and the behavior profile for them and then their interaction with the content for that day. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, and that's all done in a matter of seconds that's processed. And then a course of action is, 
is usually decided upon. And I think maybe one of the benefits of like being conscious about that process might be that a, a teacher might intentionally store that away a little bit more. Like there could be some inaction based upon that. You could, you could curate some of the data, you gather the data and then be like, Hmm, that's interesting. Tommy's behavior, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm gonna wait and see. Um, maybe that's done already too. I'm just kind of thinking about the way, like I think about digital data and it being there and the way that we have an intentional process behind all of that. And that's not necessarily there. It's much more functional or like less, um, less of an explicit process, but there's a lot to be learned there about how teachers are able to, to do that. I mean, it's the big reason why uh, the teacher in the room is such an important factor to the success of the students that they're, in, that they're interacting with, regardless of how much autonomy they have over curriculum design and uh, the, the approaches that uh, all the PD that they've had that informs their, their practice and, and stuff like that. Like um, students' ability to connect, connect with their teachers, I think, I think there's a lot of, uh, it's more than just a, a simple, I like that teacher, right? There's a lot of abilities that go into that, that maybe are a little bit more unspoken than, than other aspects of the profession. To answer your question just really quickly in a little bit of a different way, like I, I'll just tell a quick story rather than trying to like think about what didn't go right, maybe early in the day and how to tweak it and go forward like um with a different strategy i just this one story sticks out in my mind so much about something that went right that was like something i totally stumbled upon so i was teaching my last block of the day that day and um we were talking about the first amendment we were doing like some reinforcement around the first amendment and i was trying to kind of go through what rights were laid out in the first amendment and i kind of had this cadence to my speaking that I didn't realize I was doing. And I said like religion, assembly, press petition, speech. And I, just by me repeating it that much, the kids who were in that block were just really vocal. It was the end of the day. They had a really good rapport with me. They eventually like turned that little cadence into a song with like a beat on the table and everything. And I was like, oh my God, like they're rapping about <laughs> the first amendment without me even like having to like, force it on them. Right. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, that was a great way to end the day. How do I like think about injecting that into the next lesson or reinforcement around the first amendment? And then you have to take into all those things that you talked about around context. Like, is that going to fly in my uh, second hour where the kids are really quiet maybe not necessarily yeah. like have the same relationship? I might try it and I might like look like a total fool. <laughs> like if I got up there and tried to make a beat on a desk and, and rap about the first amendment rights, but um, it was still something that I registered as a data point and then tried to put into context of all the other data pieces around me um, to determine whether or not it could be effective in a different way. So. I think one of the things that fascinates me with design thinking and the reason, you know, bringing it all the way down to what the teacher's doing in the classroom as like a real time data interpreter, Right. And then you can scale it all the way out to majorly complex systems and the protocols are scalable and the intentionality of it is all scalable in a way that like a lot of different problem solving techniques or 
uh, methodologies for like solutioning don't. And I think that's the whole iterative design concept and how people are doing it. Like you guys were pointing out, they just don't know they like, they don't mm -hmm. know the terminology to describe it and giving them terminology in which to connect to, and then be able to think intentionally about how they improve on that protocol or process is a, is a really valuable thing. And then it'll just benefit the systems that they work in. And so when you get to that system wide discussion, you know, you're using you're using users to help you design the system versus having consultants come in from the outside and do that work. And now to me, that seems like the utopian vision of like a design thinking in K-12 education. Right. Is that the students and the like the stakeholders that you were talking about, Jeff, are part of the solutioning and the iterative design process in a way that's very intentional. Thanks for making this time to talk with us. I think that this, um, this adds a whole nother layer of understanding to design thinking and really builds upon what Ariel was talking about in the episode. And I think also my big takeaway here is the opportunity of design thinking um, and the invitation it gives to educators to connect with one another, connect with their students, and really get everyone calibrated to to what the what the problem is and helping them to address it in a way where everybody can get on on board with it and not just um uh, everyone uh, attacking with their different slings and arrows uh, to, to hopefully um, <laughs> uh, defeat it all by themselves, right? Thank you. Yeah, it's interesting. We probably went really far astray from the covering the the actual podcast and unpacking it, but those are the thoughts in my mind as we like as I went and listened to him speak about bringing design thinking and the D schools methodology to schools. I really latched on to the. The idea that everybody's already doing this to some degree, it's just really about calling it out and highlighting it, which I think is common in education. People have masteries of these concepts and they just don't have any way to highlight them or they don't have the vernacular to do it. And so uh, how, how can we help with that to, to improve the ability for people to intentionally improve what, what they're doing every day? So that was a lot of improves in one sentence. I'm going to leave it with that. Thank you for having me. I hope I'm back sometime soon. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. We, we'll, we'll talk. Hope you're back Find too. people. We'll call your people. <laughs> <laughs>